I'm mindful of how propaganda works. Looking at that picture of Israel there, it looked all green and lush. But the, uh, the pictures I've seen from Israel, from David and Carol, rocks, dirt. <laughs> Pastor Jerry used to say, if you can ever get to Israel, just go to Barstow, and it's pretty much the same thing. <laughs> so... Well, we're continuing our series on evangelizing the saved, and just as a reminder, I don't have time to review where we've been, but just to say that we are looking at church discipline in the context of it being the parallel to evangelism. And so as we have said and will continue to say, evangelism seeks to rescue those enslaved to their sin outside the church, and church discipline seeks to save those who are enslaved to sin inside the church. It is really designed to be the evangelism of saved people, to bring the gospel to bear on their lives. And so in light of that distinction, we're continuing to look at five motivations for doing church discipline uh, so that we will know how to rescue those who are enslaved to their sin. So we have seen that uh, the message that we looked at first was just out of Hebrews 12, that God as a father is committed to his children to discipline them, and that that is a motive behind the church practicing discipline. We have looked at the constraint of a believer, that it is, there's a, the onus on us to, to self-discipline, if you will, to make sure that we don't commit sins that require discipline, but also to not cause others to stumble uh, requiring discipline as well. And this morning, we come to the topic of the care of a brother. We'll be talking about our responsibility as a, as a brother in the Lord to care for those who may fall into sin. And so I would have you turn to Matthew 18 just in preparation for that, if you're not there already. So I'm mindful of this story in Genesis 4. This sort of occurred to me this week as I was studying. And, and you remember the story with Cain and Abel, and, and the Lord asked Cain, where's your brother? And he says, how should I know? Am I my brother's keeper? And that question has been rattling around in the back of my head as I read through Matthew 18, the question of, are you your brother's keeper? And the answer actually is, yes, you are. You are responsible for your brothers in the Lord that should they fall into sin, you are responsible to rescue them, to try all means possible to rescue them from their sin. So if you are not there, turn to Matthew 18 and and let's read through this passage, starting in verse 15. I don't have time to read the whole chapter, obviously, and I'm going to take the time to read through the end of the chapter this morning, and we, we're going to see how well that works here. <laughs> I need to be done at a quarter till, but let's, let's read uh, together. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, Take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven." Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, 
It shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three have gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst. Then Peter came and said to him, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to seventy times seven. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. When he had begun to settle them, one who owed him ten thousand talents was brought to him. But since he did not have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold, along with his wife and children and all that he had, and repayment to be made. So the slave fell to the ground and prostrated himself before him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you everything. And the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. But that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. And he seized him and began to choke him, saying, Pay back what you owe. So his fellow slave fell to the ground and began to plead with him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you. But he was unwilling and went and threw him in prison until he should pay back what was owed. So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved and came and reported to their Lord all that had happened. Then summoning him, his Lord said to him, You wicked slave! I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? And his Lord, moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. My father, my heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. Powerful parable there, powerful words in this message, but I just want to kind of overview uh, 15 to 35 of Matthew 18 with you just to point something out that will have an impact on what we talk about today. And that is that as you look at Matthew 18, there really is no discipline being spoken of in the passage. Now, most of you in your Bibles, you may even have, it says as a title there, church discipline. And as you look at the passage, though, the passage is, there, there's really no legitimate, legitimacy to calling it church discipline, because there's no discipline going on. What's going on here is a withholding of forgiveness until somebody comes to repentance and seeks restoration. Now, the passage is predominantly about repentance, it's about forgiveness, and it's about restoration. The word discipline is never used in the text. That's the first thing I want you to observe. It's also based on the initial question of the disciples in verse 1. You see that? Who's greatest in the kingdom? And as we said, it's it's one who, and some of you were sending me texts and questions about this when I talked about this. It's somebody who emulates childlike humility. And what I mean by that is not that a child is a humble person, like, like an adult, you know, they lower themselves. It's, it's the fact that by their status in society, they are a humble person. They have no rights. They have no prerogatives. They have no privileges as a child. And so 
In that culture and in that time, the thinking is that to, to emulate childlike humility means to, to rid yourself of worldly status and privilege and, and position, if you will, and to assume the posture of a child, to be humbled. Part 2 of chapter 18, verses 15 and following, is that one needs to emulate Christ-like forgiveness. Christ-like forgiveness. So it's, it's childlike humility, and it's Christ-like forgiveness. So 15 all the way to 35 is really talking about forgiveness. Forgiveness. What do you do if a brother sins against you? Well, through the process of 15 to 18, we see that one is to withhold forgiveness until the brother comes to repentance. Later in the chapter, the, the parable is all about if they do come in repentance, you're to lavish forgiveness on them, not withhold it at all. You're just to, to pour it out upon them unrestricted, unrestrained. That's the point of this message, and I hope you will see that as we go through this morning. If a person doesn't seek forgiveness, if they do not repent and seek to be reconciled, then there's, there's no way to extend forgiveness to them. And I'll explain more of that later. Ultimately, though, it's about caring for your brother in the Lord. It's about caring for them. So this morning, we're going to see the first two of four steps to biblically restore a sinning saint. Two out of the four. There are four steps in here. I can't cover them all today. We will cover the last two in the messages that follow here. So the first step to restoring a sinning saint is to confront the sin in private, just you two. You see that there in Matthew eighteen fifteen. If your brother sins. Now, some of you may have a little phrase after that. It says, if your brother sins against you. And that is probably in addition to the text. I think it's not in the earliest, most reliable manuscripts. And so the phrase against you probably is not in there But even though it doesn't show up in the text, it appears that that's how the disciples took it. If you drop down to verse 21, obviously Peter says, Lord, how many times shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? So he obviously took it in that sense that it was personal sin against him and not just sin in general. So the issue is, what do you do if your brother sins against you? And the answer is, you go to him. You, the one who's been offended, you go to him and seek to be reconciled. Now, notice also that the issue you're to confront is sin. I know that that's kind of a basic observation, right? But it's sin. It it doesn't mean personality clashes. It doesn't mean that your feelings got hurt. It doesn't even mean differences of opinions. It means that this person has made a departure from righteousness. They have left the word of truth, and they are in sin, and their sin has been committed against you personally. It's a departure from righteousness. It's a violation of God's standards. It's not hurt feelings. Okay? So you go to this person if they sin. And this is a hypothetical scenario So, what you are supposed to do, 
whether it's against you or against the body of Christ, if you witness them departing from righteousness, you are to go and show them their fault in private. That is what, that is what Jesus says here. Now go, and, and, and this is where a lot of people go off the tracks on the whole church discipline thing, and again, we're going to call it biblical restoration from this point on, okay? It's biblical restoration. The point is this person has sinned, and you're to go to them, and the going to them is a present active verb, and it means you don't just go once, you go several times. You keep going back to them until they repent or until you've exhausted all your options and you can't bring this person to repentance. You go and you keep going repeatedly, not just once. Um, And the onus is on you to go to them. It's not on the person who sinned to come to you and to ask for forgiveness. It's very important for you to understand this. If, If they sin against you, you need to go to them and try to be reconciled with them. You need to let them know they've sinned against you. And, and this is a hard one for us to grasp, but, but let me give you a, a little phrase that I think helps to understand this, and this comes out of Jay Adams' book, which I've reviewed this month in your e-bulletin, so you'll see that. It's his book, From Forgiven, Forgiven to Forgiving, and he says, the one with the sore toes goes because he's the one who always knows. I'm going to say that again. The one with the sore toes goes because he's the one who always knows. If your toes have been stepped on, you're the only one who knows it. You need to go to that person and seek to be reconciled. So the obligation lies with you to go and show your brother their fault. And the verb here, show in the Greek, it just carries the idea of convicting, uh, pointing out a fault, reproving, that's kind of the, the line of words that it falls under. You're to reprove them in private, though. Not in public. You don't stand them down in the middle of a group of people. You go to them privately. And it literally says, show him his fault between you and him alone. That's how it literally reads. So, in fact, you know, steps one and two of the restoration process are meant to be private. They're meant to be private and semi-private, or at least as private as possible, so that this person's dignity will be maintained. You know what happens to somebody when they get confronted in public, right? Their neck gets stiff, they get hard-hearted, and they, they don't want to humble themselves in the middle of a group of people. So one-on-one is the, is the best possible chance you have of getting somebody to repent, to do it in a loving manner. Once it goes broader and more people come, then you have embarrassment and you have other issues to deal with. So as few as people possible is the best scenario. One-on-one. And it also reduces the likelihood of gossip. It reduces the likelihood of gossip. And I'm mindful of Galatians 6.1. I think I put it up there for you. Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, You who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Each one looking to yourself so that you will not be tempted. So there's the idea of just approaching the person winsomely, gently. And when we talk about confrontation, it's not bringing down the hammer on them. It's approaching them in love 
and in concern for them that you want them to be restored to the fellowship. I asked him to put the scenario up here for you. So here it is. If your brother sins against you, there are really four steps uh, that are outlined here in Matthew, and it's based around four verbs. And if you look at the text with me, I'll just show that to you. Uh, First, in verse 15, you see, go and reprove. That's the first verb, go and reprove. Second, he says, take one or two with you. You see that in verse 16, the idea of taking one or two with you. I'll get to that in just a moment. Third, it's tell it to the church, verse 17. Tell it to the church. And fourth, it's let him be to you as a tax collector or a Gentile. Four verbs which define the four steps, okay? And so step one, you see the command. If he sins against you, you go and reprove him in private. And there's two possible contingencies that show up in here. And one is that he listens to you. And that would be great. That's what you're after. He listens or he hears you or he, he understands that he's done wrong and he tries to make it right. He seeks repentance, reconciliation, restoration. He asks for forgiveness with the result that if he responds that way, then you have won your brother. You've won him. And what it means by one is that you've won him over. You've won him over. He's, he's restored to the fellowship. Second contingency, though, is that he may not listen to you. He may be stubborn. He may not see the sin. He may become stiff-necked, and he may refuse to ask for forgiveness and repent of the sin. And so what do you do? What do you do? Well, the result is implied here. Then you have not won your brother. So, in regard to this first step, you're going to go back to him again, right? If he doesn't repent the first time, you keep going back, you keep going back, you keep going back, and he does not repent. He will not seek forgiveness. So what do you do? Well, you go to step two. You go to step two. And so now what that means is you have to get some help. You've lost your neutrality. You two are at war. You can't seem to be reconciled. And so you bring in some outside help, some neutral third parties. Okay? Let me just say, so let me just summarize. Response one, they listen to you. All goes well. They repent. They ask for forgiveness. You're restored. The matter's dropped. Response number two, they get stiff-necked. They don't want to repent. They don't seek forgiveness. They rebel. That means that you, despite your best efforts, you're going to need to involve some other people. Now, let me just say, too, there are times when it is appropriate to overlook a transgression. Right? You know this from the Word of God, right? This is 1 Peter 4, 8. Uh, Love covers a multitude of sins, Peter says there. Proverbs 19.11, a man's discretion makes him slow to anger, and it's his glory to overlook a transgression. So if you can overlook it, then great, overlook it. But if, it's, if it rises to the level of, okay, this is a sin pattern, or this person has really caused an offense, then you need to deal with it. And the, the same rule applies, by the way. These rules we're talking about, they apply in the home, too. So if your spouse sins against you, first option, it'd be nice if you could overlook it. 
But if it goes to pattern and they're continually doing it, then what do you need to do? You need to go to them. You need to go to them in love, in attempt to fix the relationship, to restore your fellowship with your spouse, and you need to confront them in their sin. We're after relationship. We're after restoration of a relationship. That's what this is all about. Now, we talked about repentance last week, so I don't want to go into that again. But it's the idea of putting off the sin, renewing the mind, and putting on right behavior, right? It's the intellect, the emotion, and the will all involved in turning from the sin. What I want to talk to you this morning about is forgiveness, Since this is really what the crux of the passage is talking about, the whole parable, uh, look at verse 35. My heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you do not forgive his brother from your heart. Right? This is about forgiveness. This whole section is about forgiveness. It's really the crux of the passage. And many in the church, quite frankly, they just don't understand the concept of forgiveness anymore. And so I thought it would be good for us to talk about that for a few minutes this morning. Many have adopted wrong views on the subject, largely because of bad teaching. And I'm not sure which is really harder, seeking forgiveness or extending it. I think for me personally, it's harder for me to go to a person and ask for forgiveness when I've sinned. If somebody comes to me and asks for forgiveness, that seems like no problem. I'll forgive you. But... But the harder thing to do is, is the pride and overcoming what wells up inside you and to go to the other person and humble yourself before them and to seek their forgiveness. That, to me, is harder. But I wanted to talk about these two aspects, seeking forgiveness and extending forgiveness for just a, a few minutes here. Let me just say with seeking forgiveness, it's the notion that you have to wait till you feel like it is wrong, okay? It's wrong-headed. It's not what the Scriptures teach. You do not have to feel like forgiving somebody in order to go to them and seek it. In fact, I would say just the opposite. You probably will never feel like going to them and asking for it, so you need to override that temptation, and you need to obey. need to obey. And that means that you go to the person, you humble yourself before them, and you seek their forgiveness, and you seek to be released from a debt. You've sinned against them, you owe them a debt, and you go to them to be released from that debt. It's humbling yourself. It's not saying, I'm sorry. Okay? So we need to understand the distinction there between, will you forgive me, and I'm sorry. I'm sorry just tells somebody how you're feeling. I have sorrow over this. I'm sorry. That doesn't put yourself humbly at their feet and, and ask them to release you. And that's primarily what we're talking about. Uh, to the best of your ability. Okay? So, so promise underlies the idea of forgiveness. Let, let me just say that on the front side. It's... Um, Forgiveness is a promise. It's a promise. And the same goes for extending forgiveness. You know, some, some teach that believers need to forgive themselves before they can forgive other people. How do you forgive yourself? 
You make a promise to yourself that you're not going to do that anymore and you forgive yourself for what you did. It just doesn't make any sense at all. Uh, Others teach that forgiveness should be prompted by our emotions, that we seek to be reconciled because we feel bad about something or we feel bad about the consequences and so we need to do something about it. But as I've said, it's an obedience issue. Others teach that we need to forgive God. This is really astounding to me. Some people would even say, hey, God has brought this into my life and I I really need to forgive him for it so I can move on. (sighs) Beloved, that's heresy. Do you realize that's heresy? It, It would be like saying that God made a mistake and that somehow he needs to come back to you and own up to his mistake. Crazy. None of these could be further from the truth. Believers are commanded to forgive because they have been forgiven much. Right? Ephesians 4.32. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. It's, it's, it's an obedience issue. You don't wait till you feel like it. You just need to do it. What about, can you forgive your dead parents for the way they treated you? Can you forgive the nation for how they treated African-American slaves? Or can you forgive Nazi Germany for the way they treated the Jews? No. Because ultimately, forgiveness is a promise. And you can't promise a group of people anything, especially people that aren't even coming and asking for it. Forgiveness at its core is a promise. Can you forgive whole churches for the way they've treated you in the past? Maybe you got treated shabbily at a, at a previous church, and so I, I need to forgive them. Well, nobody's asking you to forgive them, so you can't make them that promise. Now, you can be willing in your heart to let it go and forgive them, but, you, but forgiveness at its core is a promise. And, and you can't make that promise to them. Think about it with me with God. Does, God is omniscient, right? Answer? Yes, thank you. Okay, you are awake. Okay, now, does God forget our sins? Come on, speak to me. No. No, God is omniscient. God doesn't forget anything. But what he does is he actively chooses not to remember. There's a difference. One is passive, one is active. God actively chooses to not hold your sin against you. It's a promise. It's a promise that he makes to us as believers in Christ. But God doesn't forget anything. Forgetting is a passive thing that we have no control over. Forgiveness is a promise that you make to an individual that you're not going to hold their sin against them anymore. You're going to release them from the debt. I release you. You don't owe me anything. I forgive you. We even use that term in like student loans, right? The government forgives student loans. They release them from the debt that they owe the government. It's a debt. It's also a promise that that you're not going to allow this sin to continue to be a hindrance in the relationship. 
and you're also not going to talk to other people about it and gossip, you're not going to allow this sin to be a wedge in the relationship anymore. You're promising them that you're going to let it go. You forgive them. Now look back at the text of Matthew 18 with me, though. The point in all of this is that if one will not repent of their sin and seek forgiveness, then you are to withhold it until they do. I know we're supposed to be quick to forgive, but the whole point of this passage is if somebody will not repent, then you need to withhold forgiveness. The relationship is not restored. You cannot move forward in relationship with this person. They're not seeking reconciliation. They're not seeking repentance. They're not seeking forgiveness, so you can't release them. That's the point. When we get down to the parable section, again, if they do repent, then what? You, you lavish it on them. You, you forgive them wholeheartedly. Now, There's a distinction in God's forgiveness. Let me just say this. We are supposed to emulate God in this practice. Remember I said we emulate Christ-like forgiveness. Well, does Christ forgive people who don't repent? No. He doesn't. And so there's two aspects of God's forgiveness here that we need to talk about just for a moment. One is judicial forgiveness, and that's a once-for-all kind of thing. Right? Based on your faith in Christ... God forgives you, and once for all, you are a forgiven person. But then there's parental forgiveness, which is ongoing. And that's why we need to confess sin and seek restoration with God when we do fall into sin repeatedly. One is for our justification. It's a once-for-all transaction. It's judicial, legal, forensic, whatever you want to call it. The other is parental it's the continual, ongoing relationship aspect. But don't miss the point that I'm trying to make here. You are to evangelize the saved. You are to preach the gospel to them. You are to bring the gospel to bear on the sin in their lives. And it's, it's your responsibility to go to your brother, you are your brother's keeper. You are to go to them and attempt to be reconciled to them because that's what God did for you. You think about the gospel with me for just a moment. While we were yet sinners, what? Christ died for us, right? That means you didn't have to clean yourself up before you came to God. It means you were a wretched sinner And in that sin, God sent Christ to die for you. He sought you out. He sought to be reconciled to you. And as believers, we are supposed to emulate that. We have the indwelling spirit of God. We have the ability to do this. Even if somebody is sinning against you, you can override your natural inclination to sin in return. And you can go to them. And you can point out their sin in a loving way and you can seek to be reconciled to them because that's what God did for you in Christ Jesus. God rescued us from ourselves and our own sin and our own depravity and he sent the Son of God to die for us. And that, beloved, is the gospel and that is what forgiveness is all about. If someone sins against you, 
you need to seek them out and attempt to be reconciled for them, reconciled to them. You are to care for your brother. And based on their responses to the confrontation, they will either seek forgiveness and repent, necessitating that you do forgive them, or they will become stiff-necked and stubborn and refuse you, necessitating that we go on to further efforts with other people. If they will not seek repentance and forgiveness, though, you can't extend that promise to them. They're choosing to not restore the relationship. And so you move forward. Forgiveness, though, is just the starting point to reconciliation, which is a much bigger topic. But forgiveness is a necessity for reconciliation. So step one, you confront the sin in private, just you two. Step two, you confront the sin with a party, just a few. So I would have you look at Matthew eighteen sixteen for that. If he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. I probably don't need to say this, you probably know this, but not everybody responds favorably to correction and, and confrontation. So when you've exhausted all of your options, you've gone to this person over and over again and they refuse you, the next step would be to, to go gather one or two other people and bring them along with you, obviously believers. Now, one or two means that the party may include two or three people total. Total. You yourself, the person who's been sinned against, is one of those two or three. And the so that in there explains why this is necessary. Uh, They're to act in accordance with Deuteronomy 19.15, which says, a single witness shall not rise up against a man on account of any iniquity or any sin which he has committed. On the evidence of two or three witnesses, a matter shall be confirmed. So, he's quoting the Old Testament here. You You need two or three witnesses. And it's not necessarily witnesses to the original offense. They're witnesses to how the person responds to the correction. And the witnesses are there to try to bring some wisdom to the situation. They're there to, to help to show this person their fault. Now, look, look down at verses 19 and 20. I've, I've, I've seen this passage taken out of context a bazillion times. It says, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three have gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst. This is talking in the context of restoring a fallen brother. And the two or three here are the same two or three that are up there in the text. They are the witnesses. They are the witnesses. And so when two or three make a declaration on earth about whether or not this person is forgiven or not, God hears them and he approves because they are acting in accordance with the word of God. And so whatever is true in heaven is true on earth. 
that God is not forgiving this person, so the people on earth are not forgiving them. It's, it's the two or three witnesses that, that sort of lend credibility to the situation. Now, a little rending of the verse actually reads, so that every word may stand. Every word may stand. And the idea here is that all the facts may be confirmed so that uh, people's positions are understood correctly. Both sides have been represented. And it, and it may be that the witnesses can provide some clarity. They may be able to mediate the two positions. They may, they may view the situation that, yes, the sinner needs to come to repentance. Or they may find that the person bringing the charge against the person is out of line and they need to be rebuked. And so it, it is a possibility that they, they could find that the person who's being accused is actually not at fault, and they should be released. They should be released or cleared. So the role of the witnesses is a significant role, right? It's a significant role. Uh, they're essentially arbitrators in this dispute. But again, the goal is not to gang up on this person. It's not to crush them with numbers. It's to restore them in love, to restore them to the fellowship. And again, it's still meant to be as much as possible a private affair at this point. Now, if the person repents, then they're forgiven and it's it's over with. Right? If they seek to be forgiven, they reconcile the relationship, they repent of the sin, it's over with, and we don't go any further. The brother has been won over and reconciled to God and the body of Christ, and so they're released. They're released. So step two, let me, let me put this up there for you again. Kind of the same format that we looked at on step one. Here's the verb. Take one or two more with you. And the purpose of that is so that every word may stand or so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. Contingency one is implied. If he listens to them, notice the them, then the result is implied. Then you have won your brother. You have won your brother. Now, The second possible contingency is if he refuses to listen to them even, then you have not won your brother. Then you have not won your brother. And so I've put it in red up there for you just so you can see that these things are implied in the normal flow of thought. They're not there in the text, but there are implications of the text. If he refuses to listen to them, you haven't won him yet. And so it would necessitate going further. So response number one, it's implied that he listens to them, that is the witnesses, and he seeks forgiveness and reconciliation with the person that he has sinned against. And in so doing, the implication is that you've won your brother over. And so the matter is dropped. Response number two, just to summarize, if he refuses to listen even to a small group of people, then you have not won your brother And so you would need to proceed to the next step of restoration, which would be to involve the church body, which we'll talk about next week. 
Now, because now he's not only refused you as an individual, now he's refused representatives from the body of Christ who are trying to mediate as well. So, what do we do with this? Well, after discussing this with the elders, we have been working at rewriting our Constitution, and we have been working through this topic of church discipline, which is what prompted me to want to preach this series. But after discussing the implications of this passage at length, uh, the elders believe that the ideal place for them to be involved in the process of restoring a brother would be here at step two. That if you have had a situation with a brother, and you can't work it out no matter how many times you've gone to them, then the elders would ask that you would call one of them into this situation so they can act as either one or both of the two witnesses. And, and in doing that, hopefully they would bring about some wisdom, uh, an attempt to bring about repentance and forgiveness with this individual, bring the scriptures to bear. And, and the point is that they would be involved from the beginning of it going to a more public matter. Which, if stage three needs to occur, then they don't have to try to figure out what has happened all the way up to that point and then act as some sort of judicial tribunal or something like that. They've been involved from the very beginning trying to bring this person to repentance and reconciliation. And so that would be the best place for us to get involved. But notice... It's not that the person has sinned against the elders. It's that the person has still sinned against this other person and they're refusing to be reconciled over it. It's the original offense that's still the issue. It's still between those two individuals. And that's what needs to be fixed. Now notice in the text, the you all the way through it, right? If your brother sins... Uh, if he listens to you, you've won your brother. If he does not listen to you, take uh, two or three more with you. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. Um, but then if he even refuses to listen to the church, let him be to you. You see that? As a Gentile and a tax collector. This, the you is, is implied through this whole thing that, that it's still between those two individuals that this person is becoming so stiff-necked and so stubborn that they won't be reconciled to a brother in Christ, despite all the efforts otherwise. And so that's what would continue to cause the situation to progress. Beloved, we need to be careful to not allow things to escalate. You know, we're responsible, Ephesians 4, to maintain the unity of the body of Christ. Christ purchased the church with his blood, right? It is his bride. It belongs to him. By his spirit indwelling us, we are one. And it's up to us to maintain that unity. We have to maintain the unity that God has established. But the unity is fragile. It's fragile. And what we, what we don't want to see happen in this kind of scenario is one person goes to the other person to seek to be reconciled to them, to bring them to repentance and forgiveness, and they get stiff-necked and stubborn, and this person goes and gathers up all of their best friends who they think will 
go to war with them. And, and this is what happens is, is factions form. And people think, I'm going to gather my posse. And we're going to go to this other person and we'll crush them. And we'll bring them to forgiveness. And then this other person gathers all their friends. And so what you have now is two warring factions within the church. Uh, beloved, this is not a popularity contest. We're not trying to gang up on somebody. We're not trying to crush them. We're not, it's not the Inquisition. We're, we're trying to restore somebody who has fallen into sin. We love them. We want them to be restored to the fellowship. It's, so it's meant to be a loving confrontation. It really is about caring for your brother in the Lord. You're, you're seeking to win them back to Christ and the gospel. So step one, confront the sin in private, just you two. If that doesn't work, confront the sin with a party, just a few. And, and you know, sin is serious business. I know we, we tend to think of it lightly, but I read this quote by Lenski this week, a commentator, and he said this, Every time a brother really sins against another, this is a test as to whether he really intends to stay with Christ and with the church by repentance and amendment of heart, or to let the devil succeed in plunging him into impenitence. It's serious. This is serious. This passage represents, I think, a godly response to sin from somebody else. Rather than becoming angry and blowing up all over somebody because they sinned against you, a mature believer needs to go to the other person and seek them out. You know, we, we often compound issues because we respond sinfully to being sinned against. So if somebody sins against us, the answer, my, my mama told me when I was a kid, two wrongs don't make a right, right? You, you're not to respond sinfully. You're to go in love, seeking the best for this person, compassion, care. You want them to be restored. You are your brother's keeper. Now, I remember when Pastor Art was leaving for India, and he, he pulled this little rope out of his pocket. You remember this story? And he asked us as a church body to hold on to the rope. Do you remember that? How many of you were here when, he, when that happened? It's been a while, huh? But, but he asked us to hold on to the rope while they went into the mission field of India. And beloved, biblical restoration of a fallen brother is much like that. You're to hold the rope for your brothers and sisters. If they venture into sin, what we're saying is that we love you enough that we're going to pursue you. We're going to try to be reconciled to you. We want the relationship. We don't want to kick people out of the church. We we want to reconcile them. We want to hold the rope. We want to hold the rope. So in that sense, discipline or biblical restoration of a fallen saint is what I prefer. It's a benefit of membership in a local body. It's not a bad thing. It's a good thing. It's your brothers and sisters in Christ saying, 
We love you enough to pursue you even in the midst of your sin. We will come after you because that's what God did for us. We'll hold the rope, and we're not going to let you, should you stray into the dark path of sin, we will rescue you because we love you, because we care about your soul, and we're committed to you. We'll continue to preach the gospel to you because that's what your greatest need is. We need to evangelize the saved. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word, which, which really causes us to see things in a different light. Father, I pray as we talk about matters of what others call church discipline, uh, Father, but we like to think of it as the restoration of a fallen brother, that, Father, we would see that really the gospel underlies this, that it, it is our care for a brother who has fallen into sin. And Father, we need to override our, our feelings of hurt or, or our desire for vengeance somehow if sinned against. And Father, we need to be loving toward those who have fallen into sin. I pray your spirit would cause us to care for our brothers and sisters in Christ in this way. That, Father, we would not seek in our pride to, to extract justice, but that, Father, we would seek more than anything forgiveness and reconciliation and repentance. Uh, Lord, may you continue to help us to maintain the unity that you have purchased through the blood of your Son by your Holy Spirit. We pray for his sake. Amen.